from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. Thank you very much, and thank you to the organizers for inviting me to give this talk, which I'm very pleased to, because um, I think it has some... um, interesting findings to present to you and um, it's not getting all the way out everywhere which I think it should. Uh, The title here is Male Circumcision in Denmark and Implications for Sexual Function in Men and Women and uh, I could probably save a little time here not going through all the background because you are well informed all of you that a third of the world's population of men uh, are circumcised before age 15 as a matter of uh, parental decision also there's been claims of, of reduced risk of various penile and other general illnesses uh, but the evidence is far from uh, convincing and in fact even though the AAP did its best to change this general rule, there is actually no medical association anywhere in the world, as far as I know, that actually recommends routine circumcision. Um, one thing that actually struck me a few years ago, and was which, which was the impetus to carry out this study, was that uh, the influence of male circumcision on the sexual li- sex lives of men and women have been very little uh, studied in using proper methodologies. And I, I wanted to, to make a piece of uh, a little change in that. And also, this, these pictures I'll show you here uh, surprisingly come as a surprise to many people. Uh, whenever I show them, whether it's for laymen or for doctors, many people come to me afterwards and say, Wow. I really didn't know that. I never realized that. I never looked or I never had the chance to look either because I did not have a foreskin or because I don't own a penis. Um, but uh, here we have the organ, as you know, this double layered structure. And the two lines here, um, with the two black lines uh, delineating the, the foreskin, with the cutaneous part on the surface and the, uh, and the mucous membrane on the underside. And upon retraction here, These are very simple pictures. And what comes as a surprise to many people here is that upon retraction in this uh, semi-erect or erect, depending on, I don't know the details here, uh, situation, you can see that the foreskin unfolds and covers actually, in this case, uh, the major part of the penile shaft. So the the foreskin is not just a little, a piece of uh, superfluous skin. It actually is a very uh, detailed and richly innovative <coughs> sex organ on the top of the sex organ during sexual activity. Here you have the before and after neonatal circumcision. And what the picture in the right field here really uh, shows clearly that in most situations, newborn baby boys have not separated their glands from their foreskins. So it really takes violence to get this foreskin separated from the glands, and which this detail is often forgotten in in, in discussions about how simple and fast this little procedure is for the very young, and therefore it should be carried out in the very young state because it's much simpler. In fact, uh, the contrary uh, argument would be relevant, if at all. Now, the aim here for this study was to explore associations of foreskin status with various sexual difficulties, including sexual desire problems, sexual needs fulfillment problems, and sexual dysfunctions or sexual function problems. 
and uh, listed here the four specific problems in men and women, uh, premature ejaculation, erectile difficulties, orgasm difficulties, and dyspareunia in, in men, and lubrication insufficiency, orgasm difficulties, dyspareunia, and vaginismus in women. And what we did was to uh, ask others, it's not my data, and that I have found out is actually a, an advantage to me now. Uh, because I couldn't be, cannot be claimed to have manipulated the data myself. I don't own the data. I asked the, the people in another institute in Copenhagen to include these studies in their survey. And they did so. Um, and of the 10,900 uh, invited persons, we managed to have uh, roughly half of them participate in both the personal interview and the subsequent self-administered questionnaire. Here are the uh, questions uh, translated into English, and then um, don't go to detail with, with all of them, but just to see that for each of the questions here, uh, people could, ask, uh, could respond that they uh, did not at all rarely, sometimes, often, or every time experience one or more of these uh, uh, sexual difficulties during sexual activity with a partner in the last year. And for the purpose of analysis, I uh, grouped these five uh, levels into three levels and concentrated on those with the most uh, frequent problems, those with, with frequent difficulties stating that they often or every time during sexual activity in the last year had this kind of problem. Uh, there are some people who were left out of the study, some virgins and also some women with a without a spouse or steady male partner because they didn't really provide uh, relevant information in this particular study. Uh, and also persons with unknown circumcision status. Uh, and uh, here we have, uh, this is self-reported circumcision status, and 5% uh, of the males did not really know uh, whether or not they were circumcised, and 10% of the women, mostly in the elderly, among the elderly, uh, did not really know if their man was circumcised or not. That left us with uh, 2,345 men and 2,234 women, and we used some pretty simple statistics to analyze these, including chi-square tests and logistic regression analysis. And here, before going to the main results, I'll just uh, dwell a little on, on the differences that are uh, between circumcised and uncircumcised groups in Denmark and uh, most likely other uh, Western countries as well. There are some cultural differences in between the two groups, some uh, religious differences, and also some educational differences here. Actually, uh, the circumcised group appears to be a little more well-educated in the study. These factors are all included as confounders in all subsequent analyses to pull out their potential disturbing effect. And also, there were some differences with respect to the two groups' sexual experiences uh, prior to, uh, before uh, or during their life and that uh, these three factors age at first sexual intercourse number of sex partners since age 15 and also the frequency with which that sexual activity with that partner in the last uh, year uh, differed between the groups for one sex or the other so these were also included in all statistical models that you'll see here Here's the first real result from the study, uh, dealing with problems of low or lacking sexual desire and problems with incomplete sexual needs fulfillment. If we, here, uh, you can see for men and women, none of them, uh, since the confidence intervals here include the value one, they're not statistically significant. So uh, even though women with circumcised spouses tended to be uh, more often reporting low or lacking sexual desire, uh, it was not a statistically significant finding, and we didn't put any place any attention to that particular finding in this in the study. 
however, if we looked in the, the incomplete sexual needs fulfillment, one thing popped up here, and that was uh, women with a circumcised spouse uh, more often reported um, incomplete sexual needs fulfillment in the last year. With respect to the male sexual function difficulties, we see here, uh, we focus on, on the ones with the frequent difficulties here because those are the ones that, that uh, really uh, need attention. And most of us would probably know that occasionally things don't, have, don't work the way you want it to and, and that, that could easily place you in the occasional difficulties whereas the lucky 20% uh, with no difficulties whatsoever constitute the ideal reference category. Now, focusing on the frequent difficulties uh, comparison, you can see here that overall, if you can see the, uh, the analysis here combining the four specific, uh, the four specific dysfunctions in, in each uh, sex, here there is no difference between circumcised and non-circumcised men. And also for premature ejaculation, erectile difficulties, and uh, for dyspareunia, there is no difference. However, this one, the orgasm difficulties, uh, was markedly elevated in the group of men who were circumcised. Among the women, the picture was quite different. And that was uh, probably, uh, to my, uh, in my view, the most uh, surprising and, and uh, thought-provoking uh, results of our study here, across the board you can see whether occasional or frequent difficulties, they all have point estimates above one. Generally women with circumcised spouses complained of more sexual trouble than men, uh, women with uncircumcised spouses. And if we look at any sexual function difficulty overall reported as a frequent complication of their sex life, was statistically significant three-fold increase among women with a circumcised spouse. What was this due to? Orgasm difficulties like for the circumcised men and, and dyspareunia, uh, painful intercourse. We did a whole range of attempts to try and pull these results apart because we knew they, they were highly controversial. So we set up a list of altogether 16 different robustness analyses trying to uh, falsify our findings. And what we did here was, for instance, to, to restrict our uh, study uh, to people who were, had, uh, who were born in Denmark. In another analysis, we restricted to those who were non-Jewish and non-Muslims and those whose religious beliefs were unstated. So we were sure that we only had people who were not Jews and non-Muslims in the study. And we also included uh, only in an, one analysis those between 20 and, and 70 years of age. And as you can see here, the five significant findings in our main findings, in our main results, are virtually <coughs> unchanged with these restrictions. Now, we, we try to include the data for those 5% of males and 10% of females who did not know or did not report their circumcision status and the, or that of their spouse. And uh, for that purpose, we've made four different scenarios of these unknowns. Uh, and the, here we have the worst case, which is really uh, trying to, an unfair attempt to make it as, as really as, as bad as possible for circumcision. Uh, in which we uh, allocated all those with um, unknown um, circumcision status with sexual problems 
to those who were as as if they were circumcised, and in the other and all the others in the uncircumcised group, and vice versa. For the best case, we placed all those with sexual trouble, but unknown circumcision status, in the uncircumcised group, and all those without trouble in the circumcised group. And that's, that way, that could change something. If, and that's obviously a very unlikely scenario that anyone with a problem here would be, uh, would be um, uncircumcised and uh, anyone without a problem would be circumcised in, this, in uh, our culture. Also, there are two other more scenarios here. And all together, you can see generally the pattern is very much the same as what we saw in the general uh, findings except in this unlikely scenario, the best case. Also, we added some few extra confounders to the model, and so, uh, because depression and diabetes, hypertension, smoking status, and financial problems are known factors that may affect uh, sexual functioning. And uh, we wondered that there could be some other unexplained difference between the circumcised and uncircumcised groups. Uh, but these, as you can see, did not change anything. And also, uh, we tried to pull out some of the confounding, potential confounding effect of the three sexual behavior, sexual experience variables that we had included, uh, because one could think that uh, there would be a correlation between how well your sex life functions and how often you have sex. So we might some, do some over-adjustment by including all these uh, and, uh, confounders in the model, but as you can see, it really didn't matter. Finally, we wanted to examine to what extent our findings were uh, a reflection of, um, of um, or could, could cover a difference between neonatal circumcision and circumcision later in life. And in, um, in, a, un, in a generally uncircumcising country like Denmark, uh, few, relatively few uh, participants had been circumcised in the neonatal period or in the first six months of life. But to test if these uh, few people um, differed from, from those who were circumcised later, we made this uh, likelihood ratio test, which is a little technical here. But we compared two statistical models, one in which we had divided the circumcised group only, uh, or the, divided the circumcised group in two further groups, one before six months of age and one later. And then we tried to see if this statistical model gave a better statistical fit of the data compared to the, to the simpler model with only a yes or no to circumcision. And none, in none of the analysis did we find any statistical evidence of, um, of there being a, a difference or a, a particular uh, thing with those circumcised later or earlier that made us conclude that in this particular study there is no uh, evidence, uh, statistically, uh, evident, statistically significant evidence that there would be any difference in the findings whether you were circumcised neonatally or later in life. Now there are some advantages of this kind of study here. First of all, it's a population-based general health and morbidity survey. It's a large data set, uh, even though we've been accused of having too few circumcised persons in our, uh, circumcised men and spouses of circumcised men in our study. But uh, it is a large study, and uh, we have um, uh, conducted the first European study on this topic, and I urge anybody here to go ahead and, and, and try and come up with some more data, because that would really be helpful. And also, um, generally, uh, Denmark has relatively liberal views on sexual matters, so uh, circumcision and sexual behavior is pretty, uh, it's not that 
uh, hot topics in, in Denmark out of the uh, rather uh, heated debates that are currently up and running in whole northern Europe. But apart from these waves of discussion that come up every two, three years, uh, it's a non-issue. There are obviously also some limitations as in any study. It's a cross-sectional study. So in principle, we cannot tell for sure in every individual case of these 125 circumcised men that they all were circumcised before they first experienced their sexual problems. We have to admit that, but we consider that a very marginal problem, uh, not uh, influencing the um, results at all, because most of the participants were circumcised in childhood way before they started having sexual activity. Also, it's made uh, based on self-reports, and, and there can be self, uh, recall problems that may differ between those with one circumcision status or the other. However, it really takes good fantasy in my mind to create these results based on such differential recall, because people wouldn't know the study at all dealt with such a thing here. It was deeply buried in the questionnaire. Also, we have one restriction here. We don't know to what extent our findings apply to sexually inactive participants. We only included in this part of the study those who, who uh, report that they have had sexual activity with a partner in the last year. Now, the good news from our study is that, and that is important to stress that, because it's really important that we don't demonize uh, circumc circumcised uh, people. Uh, and uh, here it's, it's really important and I've had a hard time to, to maintain that in the debates in Denmark that have been going on over the summer here. Most circumcised men and most women with circumcised spouses fortunately don't face these problems. We have to recall that. Uh, it's, uh, and because it, that really helps to stress that and make a, a less um, um, unfriendly uh, attitude from, from people who are circumcised and really don't want to be labeled as sexually dysfunctioning, which is also not the case. Most people function well and most pe people uh, don't have uh, serious trouble if they have a partner who is circumcised. However, and also most sexual domains in men are unaffected by circumcision according to this study. But the bad news of, of course here for men is that we, we uh, document here a threefold increased uh, prevalence of, of orgasm difficulties among circumcised men. And uh, the pre percentages here are 11% versus 4%. And after adjustment for the different factors that I told you about, uh, this represents an arch ratio of 3.26. Sorry, how does that define pre uh, orgasm difficulty? What does that mean? Orgasm difficulties meaning difficulties reaching orgasm. That's that it's not uh, premature ejaculation, it's, it's the opposite. It's, it's, uh, I can show you the, the, um, the question again, uh, if you want to see that. Uh, I showed the question in the beginning. It's, it's um, trouble of reaching or inability to reach orgasm. Uh, altogether, there, uh, in women, uh, there was a considerably uh, more general pattern of increased uh, prevalence of problems. Uh, with a, a double risk of uh, incomplete sexual needs fulfillment and also overall uh, across the board a threefold increased prevalence of sexual functions of any kind, of, of some kind. And um, also the orgasm difficulties in women and the sexual uh, or the pain during intercourse of dyspareunia uh, was markedly increased. Now I don't want to go into detail with these uh, 
ethical dilemma aside, I just briefly want to touch upon this, this Robin Ho also alluded to, that, that if what is going on in Africa here now, in a few years, shows what we expect it to, that it will not be as effective we may, if these Danish data have any relevance outside this Viking area, which I think it may well have, um, may cause quite a, a great deal of uh, un, uh, unhappiness around the world when they, some of them realize that they have actually gotten a sexual problem on top of, um, of their loss of uh, sensitivity. Also, um, additional studies are urgently needed to, to, to come up and, and uh, and see if, if these findings have any relevance outside Denmark. Now, I want also, these were the results from, my, from um, our investigation that came out in the International Journal of Epidemiology a, a year ago, in June last year, at the day, same day when I presented the data at the uh, World Congress of Sexology in Glasgow. And um, what had been going on before this publication came out is uh, worthwhile a few words, I would say. I had been involved deeply in, in, uh, debate, in, in publications previously that are controversial in their nature. People kill each other for these matters. Abortion and breast cancer is one example in which we a few years ago showed, or 10, 15 years ago showed, that uh, abortion, induced abortion really doesn't matter in terms of uh, raising or lowering. It has no impact on the future risk of breast cancer in women, which was highly controversial. And also I've been publishing in uh, whether childhood family patterns and mortality in non-heterosexual per persons, a uh, highly heated debate where American uh, researchers from the right-wing Christian uh, pseudoscience uh, uh, wing uh, bias data, for instance, in Denmark and Norway to prove this and that, that most lately that um, gay men and lesbians are, uh, die approximately 20 years before uh, heterosexuals. Very controversial areas, but I must say this one hits them all. Circumcision and sexual dysfunction. I never ever, and I have published a number of papers over my time, I have never ever had such difficulty publishing this data. This data even though I think they are pretty worthwhile publishing so that people can see them at least. Here is page one of the Ewer report uh, that uh, came back to me when I had sent it to the, to the International Journal of Epidemiology. If, uh, with this um, letter from the editor came back this report and another report. I'll start with the other one, that's easier. Uh, that was an ordinary report. Those of you who are publishing know that peer review means that you get comments from people who are supposed to know what they're talking about. And, <laughs> and, um, and uh, the, the other review was uh, uh, standard uh, qualified and, and uh, constructive criticism with a few hundred words and some suggestions and, and this and that, it was easy to accommodate. And, and then there was this uh, reviewer report that came up and I opened it and uh, it took a while to open it because uh, here's page one and here's page two and three and four and 17 pages. <laughs> and this is uh, and <laughs> this is the kind of uh, writing that comes from someone who has strong opinions, and yet one of them. <laughs> and one of the comments here is uh, what is said comes across as an ideological rant against male circumcision. Our paper was considered a rant against male circumcision. 
uh, I never claimed that I was pro-circumcision, but to put out, uh, to, to consider these data as an ideological rant uh, is uh, out, of, uh, out of order. And uh, we dwell on the weakest literature, and uh, they, we selectively cite outlier studies. And uh, here we have a whole list of uh, additional references, actually twice the number of references that we used in our own paper that this reviewer wanted us to read and include uh, and uh, refer to. Um, what? No, perhaps, I think I'm troubling with facetious. Perhaps they're talking about the IAP report. Ah. Have yeah. you published this paper? It is out last year, yes. Uh, no, this, uh, this no. report. No. no. You should. Uh, it's, it's available. It's, it's available. Yeah. I send it out to people who want it. Yeah. I'll come back to that. Now, uh, here's a few more highlights from this uh, reviewer's comment. Uh, we exhibit uh, extraordinary author bias and we have even undertones of racism in the study because we question the studies in Africa and uh, more objectivity is required and uh, it does not merit publication in any journal and we are naive and it's all too emotionally charged and uh, we are certainly intent on misleading readers. That's the message here and then I went back and looked at this. I, Frankly speaking, I have not read the comments yet uh, because I gave up after a few pages. Uh, uh, and also, I had some uh, thoughts here. What to do with this? Usually, you take uh, reviewer comments seriously and do your best to incorporate them. But the, here, there was absolutely no uh, way that we could meet. So I contacted the editor and, uh, of the journal and said, well, I have this trouble. We have two reviewers and one of them is it's simply not possible. We can, uh, I cannot agree on, on, on these comments. And then they said, that, well, do your best. <laughs> uh, and um, I did. I took the first uh, reviewer's comments into account and uh, left out everything from the second review. I simply ignored it. And uh, just here to say that my paper is a long one. It's uh, 15 printed pages. But the review here was two and a half times that. <laughs> now, uh, here is the first page of the review round two, because much to my surprise, the, the, um, the editor sent out the, um, the, the paper, again, the revised paper, to the very same two reviewers. And that didn't satisfy the, the one here. Um, the first one was happy and had no further comments and then uh, said it was ready for publication. But the second reviewer here sent in one, two, three, four additional ten pages of new comments. And it remains unpublishable and extremist views are not needed. The findings argue in favor of circumcision. Actually, what we showed here was in favor of circumcision. And everything is misleading and it's deliberate obfuscation consistent with dishonesty. We continue making outrageous statements that any expert reader will dismiss, and it's all wrong and dangerous advice. We advise people to be more conservative and, and uh, foreskin preserving in their surgical uh, endeavors when surgery is needed. And also, we have no understanding of epidemiology, which I was kind of sad about. <laughs> Okay, the second review here was only about the same length as the paper, so the <laughs> progress. And then I just, uh, the following, the, the letter accompanying these comments was from the editor 
stating that now please incorporate these changes uh, in your revised manuscript and we'll be happy to consider it again. And I thought, my gee, how could I again incorporate anything? And I ignored it altogether and um, I just uh, rephrased two or three sentences because I felt that sounded better, not inspired by this reviewer. <laughs> and I sent it back and said, well, now it has to, uh, it goes right or wrong. And happily, the uh, editorial board um, decided to go ahead and ignore this reviewer's uh, criticism. Now, underway, uh, the paper came out in June last year, and I was um, informed by someone on the internet who happened to be on the reviewer's mailing list. And uh, a few days after it came out, this reviewer had sent out a cry to everyone on his mailing list, asking people to cast away whatever they had in their hands, to write letters in abundance to the editors, to criticize this piece of paper. I know you're busy fellows, but this is important. You have to, to criticize it. And whether the editorial board received a lot of letters or not, I don't know. There was only published one letter to the editor. And so those of you with good eyes can see here, one of them is maybe known to you. His name is Brian Morris. <laughs> <laughs> and there is also Jake Waskett on board here and a Professor Ronald Gray, um, one of the authors of one of the African trials. So in a more polite tone, with no accusations of racism or other indecent uh, accusations, um, they just listed up uh, a few decent words of how incredibly poorly conducted the study was and uh, that we were absolutely statistically wrong and nothing was true and um, any decent reader would know that and it should uh, be acknowledged. I responded to that criticism and um, I think I addressed each of the points they came up with at least I've heard so from several readers around the globe that uh, this response uh, was a fair response. But also, I used the chance here to, to highlight this hypocrisy and this uh, double tongue of uh, this reviewer who uh, actually used very um, on uh, traditional ways of uh, getting his uh, will through. And um, what I explicitly mentioned that uh, he breaks the rules of the, the unwritten rules of um, scientific reviews and uh, there is a codex here that you, you simply don't distribute your comments. That's internally between you, the editors and the, the reviewers. It's confidential. But they were sent out on his mailing list and I asked the one who informed me to please pass them on to me also because he didn't do that initially. And I could see it was verbatim the same as these extreme, extremist uh, reviews that I've gotten from the journal. So I knew this was uh, Brian Morris who had been the reviewer. And he hasn't denied that either. So now I'm on Brian Morris's mailing list and I'm addressed Dear Morton every time. And here's this week's new circumcision papers for your interest. <laughs> okay. I don't know um, time is, is out. Done very well. Um, yeah, and you probably know Brian Morris. For those who don't, I have some links here, and I would like to show that for you if, if possible. But that's it. Yeah, thank you. We have a question from Richard at the back. Not a question, but an observation. People you're dealing with who are critics always watch for two things. 
The first is an ad hominem attack. They don't have any facts on their side. Look at all the things they said. They didn't really deal with any of the material you the statistics you reported. They, they talked about what was wrong with you. And, and they are very fond of one thing that's called the Bonferroni correction. And they, uh, when you make many com comparisons, they try to wash out any associations by demanding a whole lot of uh, corrections. And, and the other thing is psychological projection. They attribute to you the, the unethical and unscientific ways they have of approaching things, and they accuse you of approaching them the way they do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Psychological uh, projection. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Robert? Um, in your survey, do you think men were a little less uh, forthcoming in uh, that they had sexual difficulties with women? And that may have been explained why you saw a gender gap in your data? <laughs> no, frankly, I think I have good reason to believe that uh, it may well, very well be not far from what we see here because the foreskin really has no uh, bearing on whether you can get an erection or, or not. And uh, well, some claim uh, some have pain during intercourse, but some uncircumcised men also have pain during intercourse. I, I think that it's, it it could very well be a plausible reflection of what is going on. I know other studies have uh, have suggested there may be some increased risk of premature ejaculation among circumcised men. We didn't see that here, but uh, I don't I don't think generally that they were reluctant to 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 come to answer these questions. Uh, the gentleman at the back of the dark shirt, please. Yes, I have two questions. One regarding the, uh, the orgasm difficulties. Do you relate to uh, sexual intercourse, to masturbation, or to both? And the second, uh, oh, it was one. Yeah, uh, it was sexual activity with a partner, no, no more specifically uh, uh, so no, Masturbation was not permitted in the questionnaire. I did not own this questionnaire, but uh, we were not uh, permitted to ask. And, and my second question, uh, what was the International Journal of Epidemiology your first choice as a journal for publication? No, it was not. It was the seventh journal. And that I am embarrassed to mention because the International Journal of Epidemiology is a high rank actually among the very top journals of epidemiology. I just aimed even higher in the beginning because I thought it was very controversial and I thought that uh, even some of the generalist <coughs> medical journals would find this interesting. But, um, and they did, but they didn't dare. Uh, yeah. um, I'm sure you're familiar with the 1997 Laumann study that was mentioned in yes. Dr. Howe's um, uh, presentation, and it in some ways contradicts the data that you found. Uh, I was wondering if you could, what, what are your thoughts about that study and how it relates to the your, to your findings? Now the funny thing here, I think, is that it really doesn't contradict that much. The thing is that in, if you look in the Laumann study, you don't find the analysis of the impact or the possible impact of circumcision on orgasm difficulties. You find them on all the other sexual difficulties. But because the prevalence of orgasm difficulties in the Laumann study was underneath the limit of 10% or so, they did not report it. I have tried in vain over and over again contacting Professor Laumann to get access to these data or to ask him to please provide me with the results of the association between 
circumcision and orgasm difficulty. And also in his other paper uh, dealing with um, female sexual problems. Somehow the, the link between the male partner's circumcision status and her sexual response or sexual trouble was not part of the study, even though they had all the variables at hand. Right, but he did argue that at a certain age, um, intact men had a higher level of sexual dysfunction than circumcised men. Yeah, but sexual dysfunction is a widely defined uh, entity in that study. If you specify them out, if, if, you can see, I find the same thing if we lump them all together, but there is no reason to believe that the etiology of erectile problems is the same as those with orgasm difficulties or retarded, uh, or with a premature ejaculation or with pain. It's not the same thing, so it doesn't, it, it's, it's very implausible that you have the same causes. And, and just very quick follow-up, um, one of the things that you mentioned in, in your study is that um, the number of people who were circumcised at infancy in your data set was very low. Do you yeah. think that that would have any impact? Yeah, it has, an, it has the impact that the statistical power in our study to specifically state that this is shown in neonatally circumcised boys, we cannot do that. But we can say that there is no evidence that the findings in our study are any different in the two groups. Right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, gentleman here, uh, then Tim at the back. Just I think that'll be it after that. To follow up on the orgasm difficulty, you said it was either if it was delayed or impossible. Mm -hmm. Was that yeah. uh, put together in the one question? Mm -hmm. And was there a subjective component? Because, of course, yeah. some, to yeah. some people, a delay would be uh, a welcome event. Yeah. Uh, so that, so it, the, question would, the, the relevant question would be delayed beyond your subjective preference or something like that. So I'm just not sure how it was phrased. Yeah, I can show you again. Uh, there is a any uh, every question in our in our study uh, had an element of subjectivity to it, oh, yeah. obviously. And uh, all I'm saying is the question is: uh, Are orgasms delayed for you? And they say yes. And then it's called an orgasm difficulty. Yes. That's it, a, if 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 you experience it often or every time you have sex with a partner, then it's a difficulty. Yeah. If it's delayed. If you have delayed or, or you are unable to reach orgasm often or every time, that's how we define it, yes. Sure. Yeah. Just to add here, uh, there was this question before. Uh, this study came out as a fourth study in the series. First, we have published three other studies on various socioeconomic correlates of sexual dysfunction, health correlates of sexual dysfunction, and behavioral or lifestyle factors associated with sexual dysfunction. Each of these three studies came out in record speed. They came out with acclaiming editorials in Journal of Sexual Medicine, two of them, and one of them in Archives of Sexual Behavior. When I submitted this to our Journal of Sexual Medicine, which had just published briefly before the two other papers, everything was wrong with this paper. And the only difference was that we added now one, one variable, circumcision status, or that of their spouse. The data were not trustworthy. Hmm. Um, Tim, and then that would be it. Um, the circumcision part of the most anecdotal evidence, as we'll hear on Wednesday, backs up what you're saying. One of the questions that was asked on the survey was, uh, do you experience delayed orgasm? And in parentheses, I can't come when I want to, versus premature ejaculation, I come sooner than I want to. The majority answered that it was delayed orgasm and that 
the vast majority, at the 70, 75 percent, were circumcised at birth. So that goes back to Ellie's question. And it does back up what you're saying, even though it's anecdotal. Well, thank you very, very much. Thank you. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. 